This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She is tattooed, swears like a sailor, and considers herself a misanthrope. Not the traits you'd associate with a pastor, but Nadia Bowles-Weber is one. She founded the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, a Lutheran church. Bowles-Weber is a former stand-up comedian who had a drinking and drug problem. She's also a New York Times bestselling author for her memoir, Pastrix. Her latest book is called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. Let's listen back to my interview with her from earlier this year. It was one of the most popular of 2016. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. I love how you lay bare the darkest parts of your nature in this book. You started the House for All Sinners and Saints in 2008, and early on you thought it would attract, quote-unquote, cool people. But you write in this book that it drew a lot of folks who are socially awkward, reading here from the book. So eventually I started to ask myself, wait, why am I not attracting other cool people? I mean, why aren't there people like me coming? And then in parentheses, you seem disgusted by your own thinking and say, what kind of person thinks this? Say more about who showed up and how that differed from your view. Well, it's kind of a a longer story, but, um, you know, earlier in that chapter, I discussed the fact that I was really sick as a kid. I had an autoimmune disorder, which caused my face to be kind of disfigured. And um, I was that way from ages 12 to 16. So, you know, I ate all of my lunches alone in middle school, and I developed a sort of angry personality that sort of masked some of that. And, um, you know, I early on in the life of the congregation, people who were socially awkward kept showing up. And I was like, why are they coming? Why aren't I attracting people like me? And it just took a couple of years before I realized, oh, my gosh, I had been attracting people like me all along. It's just it wasn't the the sort of, you know, funny, um, tattooed, you know, supposedly cool pastor who drew them in. It was the it was the awkward, painfully skinny girl who ate all of her lunches alone in middle school was drawing the people in. Like, I'd been attracting people like me all along. I was just too arrogant to admit it. Huh. And when you had that realization, what what did it feel like that these people were actually more like you than you thought? Well, what happened was it, it I don't know, as cheesy as it sounds, it like changed the shape of my heart because... I could so much more easily love them then. Like then I, it's like because I stopped trying to hide the parts of myself that they were making me face. So instead of just projecting things on them that I didn't like about myself and then reacting in that way, I could just see how sort of broken and beautiful they were at the same time. It's like once I sort of accepted that in myself, it was easier to love that in other people as sort of pop psychology 101, as that sounds. Mm. How does that relate to the subtitle of this book, Finding God in All the Wrong People? Well, you know, I think, you know, religious people, it's like you have to be some odd combination of Ned Flanders and Bono, you know, in order to be considered like (laughs) Christian. I don't know. It just sort of boils down to this like saintly sort of, you know, nicey nice character and personality. And yet I don't experience God in, in that particular affect, you know, which I think that's just an affect. I think we all have these jagged edges of our humanity. And so much of religion and spirituality is about like sanding those things down. So we're super smooth and shiny. But the fact is, is like the jagged edges of our humanity is actually what connects us to God and other people. You see that in Mary, don't you? 
Jesus mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was, you know, this insignificant peasant girl in first century Palestine who had an unplanned pregnancy, right? That's not the way you expect God to show up. And yet God chose to make God's home in the womb of this this young woman, which is, what does that say about all human bodies and the nature of God? I think it's something to pay attention to. There are somewhere around 250 people in your congregation. Oh, there's much more. There's like 400. 400. We have (laughs) old numbers. Yeah. It's It's been growing. It's big, yeah. You meet in Denver's North Capitol Hill neighborhood, and you welcome LGBTQ individuals, people struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. You welcome agnostics and non-believers. You consider yourself an Orthodox Lutheran. You write in this book, there are many reasons to steer clear of Christianity, no question. What do you mean? Oh, man. I totally understand why people don't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, every time I hear Sarah Palin say something irretrievably mean and stupid about poor people, (laughs) you know, I'm like, I get why people wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. There's so many bad representations, and it's been so perverted for so long, but... um, but the fact is is that 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 symbol system is still really powerful at its core despite the fact that myself and so many other people have done damage to it right despite the fact that it's had bad representation myself included that particular symbol system has so much redemption and beauty in it that i think it's we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater you include yourself in how christianity has been poorly represented what what do you mean well, like, I'm just not that nice. You know, I, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, there's like this, there's this huge distance between like my ideal self and my actual self. And, and I, I am always aware of that distance. And yet I think that like the self who God has a relationship to is my actual self. I mean, I think that's one reason why Christianity is so powerful. I don't know why it's been sold as a behavior management program for so long, like a way to sort of perfect yourself and make yourself into something shiny and perfect, because that would imply you then didn't need God. What, how, how, what, what is, that doesn't even make sense. You write in this book about a woman named Alma White. How did she shed new light on what it means to be saintly for you and who is Alma White? Well, I am, um, you know, I started the church when I was still in seminary and at the time I knew of two women in the entire country I could name who had started churches by themselves. It's just not something that happens very often. And I was desperate for role models and um, a woman who's involved in the church and I uh, were walking down the street uh, right by the Capitol. And we look up and we see KPOF on the top of this church. And we look in the courtyard and there's this memorial to the founder of the Pillar of Fire Church. And it says Alma White. And it was like the early 1900s. And I just looked at her. I was like, Alma is a woman's name. And I just quickly pulled out my iPhone and I looked up Alma White on Wikipedia. And like, I got so excited because it was like, she founded a church in the early 1900s in Denver, like on her own. And I was so excited. And I just kept reading. And she was, you know, the first bishop, female bishop in America. And she, you know, she was known for her feminism. I was like, awesome. And then I kept reading. And it was like, and her association with the Ku Klux Klan and her anti-Semitism. And I was like, wah, 
Wah. Not a role model. No. So I, I call my friend Sarah Miles uh, in San Francisco and I go, oh, I thought I had a role model, but it ends up she's just a lousy racist, you know. And she said, well, you know, give me her name and I'll add her to the litany of saints along with all the other broken people of God. And it just made me go, oh, my gosh, she's right. I just... You know, the idea of a saint is like somebody who's so, who's perfected themselves, who's on, who's maybe undergone the project of their own sanctification so much that they're practically floating off the ground. And while having traits to admire in other people, there's nothing wrong with that. What I really want is to feel less alone, and I feel less alone when I know the broken parts of people, when they're honest with me about the mistakes they've made, Right. And so I think what we celebrate in the saints is truly God's ability to get beautiful, redemptive stuff done through broken people more than we celebrate the fact that these people have managed to not be broken. But if that's the case, if there's so much to celebrate in in flaws, what is the point of avoiding sin? Well, that is to say, the more I sin, the more you could find to love about me, Pastor Nadia. Yeah, probably. You know, because I do take people's private confession and absolution, and honest to God, most times it's boring. Like, like nothing, nothing personal, but like, I am unimpressed with your sin. You should really go out and try harder. But um, no. <laughs> no, but you can't actually avoid sin because it's just we're like human beings have a have a, a capacity for screwing things up. There's no way to avoid it. Now, you can avoid a lot of forms of like immorality, you know, but you're never going to avoid being somebody who's broken and who makes mistakes. And the thing is, is that because we're broken and make mistakes, it means that we have no choice but to rely on God. And so having such a sort of low view of human beings allows you to have a high view of God and the way that God comes in and fills in those cracks and manages, like I said, to get beautiful things done through us, even though we are broken. This seems like an important distinction you make between sin and immorality. Yeah, I mean, a a lot of times they're conflated, and sometimes certainly they overlap. But I think the problem with saying, oh, sin is like this list of no-nos, and if you can manage to avoid them, then you're good. Um, I've never met anybody who's managed to avoid being a sinner, because even if you manage to live this super-duper, clean-cut, moral Ned Flanders life, then you're just prideful, right? And then now, again, that's a sin, right? So we all think on some level like this kind of work or what I call law will save us. Like, just give me a plan. Give me some work to do. Give me a project to undertake. And somehow that will save me. But the thing is, is when you're under a work plan or you're under the law, you only have two choices, pride or despair. You're either prideful about the fact that you're pulling it off better than other people, or you despair at the fact that you can never manage to pull it off. And either way, there's no freedom in that. Hmm. You've made uh, several references to Ned Flanders. <laughs> For those who are not Simpsons fans, this is this sort of um, milk toast, uh, ultra conservative Christian in the in the Simpsons, who's like super duper cheerful all the time, which yeah. I'm always suspicious of. But also, uh, g- like a genuinely good neighbor. To people, right? Yeah, a good neighbor. And there's like nothing wrong with that. But I can't, I just can't get behind the idea that anybody is like always legitimately cheerful or always wanting to be helpful, right? Maybe their sin is their need to be needed, but it's in there somewhere.
More with Denver Pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber after a break. Our interview about her book, Accidental Saints, was a 2016 favorite. Coming up, why Jesus is like a Facebook friend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the final days of 2016, we are listening back to unforgettable interviews from the past year. Let's return to my conversation with Nadia Bowles-Weber. She's the founding pastor of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. Her latest book is called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All of the Wrong People. You say Jesus is like a Facebook friend who always tags bad photos of you. Yeah, yeah, you know the ones where like your one eye's half closed and your butt looks really big. Uh huh. Yeah, you mean virtually every Facebook photo? Of Jesus? <laughs> exactly. Why is Jesus like that? Well, he's. I just feel like Jesus is like relentless for not letting us off the hook when we think that we can justify ourselves. Like people would always come to him and be like, "Hey, look, like I honor my father and mother, and I go to the temple and I tithe, so like I'm good, right? Like I've justified myself. I've undergone the project of my own sanctification." And he's like, well, have you sold all your possessions and given them to the poor? You know, it's like the people who were stoning the woman caught in adultery. He's like, you who are without sin cast the first stone. So basically every single attempt that we have to justify ourselves, Jesus says, not so fast. You sort of dissect sin in the book through the lens of a character named Candy. I think this is not her real name. Um, You met Candy while working as a student hospital chaplain. Candy had lost her unborn child. She had several kids but couldn't keep any of them. And she also had some physical signs of having used meth. You write that people aren't punished for their sins so much as by their sins. What do you mean and how does Candy illustrate that? Well, the reason I was telling that that story, just to put it in context, was just the um, just the power of, of knowing... Uh, forgiveness of actually hearing that our worst mistakes do not define the way God sees us, do not give us our identity, just as our greatest victories don't define the way God sees us or Mm. give us our identity. And so in that case, um, you know, people really can be weighed down by the things that they've done. I think people can really carry that burden, like I said, of that distance between their ideal self and their actual self. But it's fascinating that I, w- I would want to be freed from my sins and not defined by them. I am less apt to want to be um, separated from my greatest victories. I know. That's a killer, isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> Well, because um, ultimately pride isn't really going to serve you in the way that we think it will. I mean, I think this is why I believe in God is I just need that power that's bigger than me to save me both from my from my sins, but also from the pride of my victories. Um, people ask me, hey, how many copies of your books have you sold? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I beg pe- my publisher not to tell me because I, there's no good to be had from it. Because if it's more than I thought, I'll be prideful. And if it's less than I thought, I'm going to be depressed. So like, I don't even want to know, right? So I feel like so much of our lives can sort of teeter into one direction or another in a place that feels more intimate integrated and balanced is to know someone else has this. Like my identity, my worth, my value is not going to be based ultimately in a spiritual way in any way by the things I've done well or the things I've done poorly. There's so much freedom in that. 
What role do um, skeptics, non-believers play at the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver? Because you, you have members who, who just aren't sure God is, is around. Yeah, I I never really feel responsible for what people believe at church. I mean, I feel responsible for what they hear, but what they believe is affected by so many things I have nothing to do with. And so we've just never thought belief should be the basis for belonging. Literally, the basis for belonging is showing up. That's it. My, I had a bishop who said that's the greatest spiritual discipline, just showing up. Mm. You talk openly about what you consider your shortcomings or internal battles, both with religion and life more broadly. Can, can we just wrap up with this excerpt? I'd like to have you read it. Sure. Okay. My own spirituality is most active in the moments when I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me, despite the fact that I'm an a-hole. Or when I'm confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I can't manage to hate my enemies. And when I'm unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do, because my own crap is too much in the way. And when I have to bear witness to another human being's suffering despite my desire to be left alone. And when I'm forgiven by someone even though I don't deserve it, and my forgiver does this because he, too, is trapped by the gospel— And when I end up being changed by learning to love someone I'd never choose out of a catalog, but whom God sends my way to teach me about God's love. But none of these things are a result of spiritual practices or disciplines as admirable as those things can be. These things are born in a religious life, in a life bound by ritual and community, by repetition, by work, by giving, by receiving, by mandated grace. That is Denver Pastia, pastor, pardon me, Nadia Bowles-Weber, reading from her latest book, Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. It was one of the most popular Colorado Matters interviews from 2016. So was one with the Lumineers, and we'll listen back to it after a break on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It took four years, but it was worth the wait. Denver band The Lumineers put out their sophomore record in 2016. Some of the songs, like this one, Ophelia, are meditations on the band's fast rise to fame and what comes next. Keep in mind, their first album went platinum plus. They were nominated for Grammys. The president even included one of their tracks on his Spotify playlist. Well, let's listen back to my interview from earlier this year with singer and guitarist Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights, who plays the drum and piano. Here's Wesley sharing his take on the band's rapid success. For me, I feel actually pretty, pretty okay about it all. I Nothing really broke for me till I was nearly 30. So I think that alone, I'd sort of formed some idea of who I am and who I was at the time. That if you're not this, a child star, in yeah. Other words. And, and to be honest, if I was 18 or 19, I had enough trouble dealing with it around 30. It's really, it's just an odd thing to have people treat you, I guess, sort of differently and look at you differently. Um, it can go to people's heads. I can see how it would. But um, for me, I, I didn't really take it seriously because I stopped taking 
uh, seriously the sort of lack of anything happening and as though that was some indicator of that we weren't doing good things before anything broke. So. I see. That is to say you took the, the lull that was before this uh, with a grain of salt and you're applying the same to fame. Yeah, just the idea of uh, – I just like the idea of keeping your own score about your life and, and the things that you're doing in it and not having – not turning to some external keeper of that, you know, like, a, oh, this album's not half as good because it sold half the amount of records. I know that to be false, you know, by hmm. by bands that I listen to and like anyway. So That is to say that you have bands you love who aren't necessarily all that popular. Yeah, and when we first moved here – Nathaniel Rayleigh would be a good example of someone who's been doing it at a high level for a long time. And now he's getting levels of recognition uh, that I think could have came to him way back when we first moved here, I don't know, six years ago. Yeah, Nathaniel Rayleigh, who's now with the the Night Sweats, that's his latest uh, iteration. He's been with Born in the Flood before that. Uh, Jeremiah, on this notion of, of success, whether there's a curse to it, it's pure blessing. What, what do you make of it? I think it's a pure blessing in that uh, it's, a, it's prompted me to kind of frame my thinking differently. I think when we were the underdog, I never stopped and appreciated anything we were doing because we were always, me and Wes, driving the band, writing the songs. We always were trying to get the next gig. And for me, one of the things I always wanted to do was play Red Rocks and collectively between Wes and myself, played Letterman and go to Europe. And I thought though, between those three things, I thought that would give us maybe a decade of hard work to do it. And we did it, you know, arguably too quickly to the point where, all right, well, I'm running out of checkpoints. I should just stop and really appreciate what's happening because this is incredible. And I don't think that was really ever in my character. I mean, I'm only 30 right now, but I think stopping to appreciate things and take a deep breath was not really in my forte. I think it was more, don't appreciate what I did yesterday. What can I do with Wes tomorrow and today? Yeah, I think also to add to that, we... We have an audience that uh, was never there prior to the first album that's sort of waiting for what we're going to do next and how they feel about it's out of our control. But just the idea that anyone would be waiting uh, for us, whether it's at a show where it sells out early or at all, or an album that people are interested in hearing, I think it's, uh, to me, I'd, I'd welcome that pressure. And I think mm. it's a, it's it's really you know, a blessing in, in that way. Well, even people who, uh, you know, perhaps weren't intimately familiar with your first album certainly were familiar with your first single, Oh mm. Hey, uh, because it was played so much on radio stations across the country. I've been trying to do it right. I've been living a lonely life. I've been sleeping here instead. I've been sleeping in my bed. Did you get sick of that song? No, never. I mean, they're all our children. <laughs> and uh, People get sick of their children sometimes. <laughs> sick of it, That's though. True. <laughs> That's true. Maybe that was a bad metaphor. I'm not a parent, but uh, I don't think I've ever been sick of any of our music. I think that I think I became sick of three years of touring. I really wanted to get back to to writing um, music with Wes. I felt like that was something that was getting lost in the endless touring. But, you know, songs like Ho Hey and Stubborn Love, they really opened up the keys, gave us the keys to the world. They allowed us to tour in new and foreign countries and allowed us to uh, shine light on the rest of the songs off the, that album. But you've had the experience of listening to a song too many times and starting to hate it. Someone else's song. Right. Is that why we hate songs eventually? It's because there's someone else's. Well, in I other think, words, yeah, I think I'm sorry I cut you off. No, no, I was just in the dentist yesterday and it was playing. Uh, 
<laughs> you had your I mouth was, open in the yep. chair. And then I went to Fun Six and it was playing there. So you said Fun Restaurant. Today, yeah. you know, to this day, you know, it's still being played. And I think I just, uh, that's odd to me because I don't know if any song deserves that much play. It's just not, that's not natural. <laughs> we would stick it second or third in every set eventually because we had a whole album that we were proud of and we, we connected with. And I felt like if that's what you're here for, then here, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. And then you can leave after that or you can stay and see what else is on this record. Hmm. Uh, and I, I've been to shows where the person holds back the big songs till the end and I always resented that. Or don't that. play them at all. <laughs> yeah, and I sort of resented that. Uh, so for me, I wanted to sort of say, hey, I recognize that some people maybe came with a friend and aren't familiar with the whole catalog, but let's just put it out here for you and then you can make your own decision later. But it turned out to be, I think, a helpful thing because people did realize that there was a full record there and uh, to be listened to. Yeah, and the more I listened to that record, and I'll say that that uh, Ho Hey was my introduction to it. It was so refreshing because it was not um, kind of like one hit wonder territory. There, there were so many other good songs on the album. Um, not everyone can say that, I guess. You know, who has a big hit, breakout hit? Mm-hmm. So basically, four years between the first and the second album, and that was, I guess, Jeremiah, because of the touring. There was just such an emphasis on that. We tried to write, but it was difficult to do it remotely. It just wasn't in our wheelhouse. I mean, there wasn't. We were trying to not lose that that muscle of songwriting because that was a big fear. You know, tour two and a half, three years, and then you're supposed to just go back in the studio and start working out again. And if you let that muscle atrophy, it's it's dangerous territory. Well, gosh, we should hear some more music. So why don't we listen to more of Ophelia? This is the the second verse. I, I... Got a new girlfriend Feels like he's on top This is a song about falling in love, but it's not falling in love with a, a person, I understand. Yeah, so Ophelia was written in this sort of stream of consciousness way, and it was about falling in love with the fame or the attention side of things that's so temperamental and so temporary in the music world. You're the bright, shiny toy for a period of time, and then, then the baby's going to pick out another one, and you're just going to have to deal with that. <laughs> and so for me, I never really wanted to fall in love with any of that because I always viewed it as, you know, someone kind of liking you for something that's not necessarily all you. It's the Mm. moment. You two kind of locked yourself away in a house in Denver to write this new album. It was a house sort of hidden in plain sight in in Denver and nothing particularly that special about it other than it was going to allow us to do what we originally were doing. You know, all of our lives was writing music together in very plain and ordinary circumstances. You know, there's this old upright piano that uh, actually got sent out from my old house in Ramsey, New Jersey, where we both grew up. And we've written a lot of stuff on that because it's just kind of this old kind of dirtbag piano, for lack of a better description. (laughs) Is it in tune? Sometimes, yeah. (laughs) Sometimes. It's in tune and it gets the job done. And there's something about it that's just great. So that was always, that was the staple. And then Wes had all his guitars on these racks and... We had a computer to record the ideas and microphones, but it's it's mostly me and a piano, Wes and a guitar. And once the song starts to get legs in that environment, you know, very stripped down, open mic style, then we start to flesh it out. We never ever go into Pro Tools or the recording environment thinking, 
let's lay this down and we'll we'll figure it out later in post production. We'll add delay or mm. insane drums. It's always a very simple idea that has to reveal itself. And so by the time you get to the studio, it's pretty much laid out. Yeah, yeah, the, it's pretty well formed, most of the album. Yeah, the only song that didn't follow that formula of being done before going into the studio is Angela. The strangers in this town, they raise you up just to cut you down. Oh, Angela, it's a long time coming. When we were going to rent the house in Denver, it was in the same neighborhood that we originally moved to. We were walking around, the, the lady showing us, and then we're like, we're going to be honest... We're in a band, and we're going to be making music here, and her face just dropped. We were already, like, X'd, you know. We are out at that point. And so she's kind of, like, not really going to rent it to us. And I was like, no, we're, we're going to work normal hours. We don't have jobs. This is our job. Uh, we're in the Lumineers. And, and she just was like, wait, what? And then she started coming around. Maybe she would rent us this house. <laughs> and then we kept really normal business hours. We would work, you know, 9 to 5 or 10 to 6. And so the neighbors never knew what we were doing in there once no one ever knocked on the door to tell us to turn it down like Jared was saying it was kind of hidden in plain sight in the sense of they would never suspect that someone would be working on an album the way we make songs is so small you know it starts in such a small way that you don't really hear someone wailing on drums most of the day so it was kind of a funny experience to one of the few times we've name dropped to try to get something. And it worked. It, it worked, yeah. Wesley, I want to ask you a little bit about your vocals. So on the track Ophelia and then on another one, Long Way From Home, you let your voice crack. Got a little paycheck, you got. It seems like a vulnerable thing to do as a vocalist. Is And I don't know, is it a flaw in your voice or is it just a quality of your voice? How do you perceive it? It's something I really like about my voice, I guess, if you could say that. I know I listen to, I think it's called Mother, John Lennon. Uh, Mother, you held me, but I never held you. That whole, and then he, his voice starts to break throughout that song. And that's one of the things I admired about his ability to push his voice to the limit to where it's breaking. It's actually kind of distorting. And uh, I remember seeing a comment from someone saying that there's a, actually a vocal issue on some social media thing about the recording engineer must have screwed up because there's a clip in Ophelia. And it's not. It's just my voice actually kind of Naturally reaching, doing pushing that. to the max. And so it makes for an interesting moment every night singing that moment too. But I really like going there because I do like feeling like I can be vulnerable up there. I think that's... I'm not a ham. I'm not an entertainer, you know, by my nature. So when I go on stage, that comes from a very different place than, than let's say, a lot of other people. It's very, it it's takes, not me, show, it takes a lot sh- out of me. Yeah, and it's not showing off. Right. So I think it, it, it gets pulled up, almost conjured up from a different place in, in me. And so I think that helps me to uh, to go there, is to have those moments, like, vocally. It reminded me of, I heard Samuel L. Jackson saying that, you know, he has a, he had a really bad stutter, but if he said mother, he could totally not stutter. It was like, it helped him get over that. And for me shouting like that, it helps me sort of get over this tension inside of me. All right. From vocal quality to lyrical quality, there is a lyric in the song Long Way From Home, which also features that lovely kind of vocal crack. Um, and, and the lyric stood out to me. It's so simple. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. Hospital gowns never fit like they should. We yelled at 
jobs didn't do so many of us can identify with that being in that awkward gown in the doctor's office how does that make it into a song it's one of my favorite songs because it's sort of it was cathartic to write you know i was like it was one of the only songs i can remember where i was writing lyrics and being in tears and then going back to the guitar and singing more and crying again and then you know not and writing and it was about losing my dad and i remember the final night that scene I'm setting is, uh, at the end of it, it says, more morphine, the last words you spoke. And that was the last thing he said. He was in so much pain. He was calling out for relief of that. And that's what he said. It was a very odd thing to hear your dad say. It's his, like, last words. More morphine, the last words you moan. At last I was sure that you weren't far away. More with the Lumineers as our year-end retrospective continues on Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's return to my conversation from April with two members of the Lumineers, Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights. The Denver band's sophomore release is called Cleopatra. Grief seems to be something of a motivator for the Lumineers. I mean, you said that you grew up in Ramsey, New Jersey, both of you. Um, You make Denver your home now. But, uh, Wesley, you were close friends with Jeremiah's older brother, Josh, who passed away in his late teens. And I understand, uh, Jeremiah, that that incident really led you to music and, and finding solace in it. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's not so easy as, you know, the passing of that <clears throat> occurrence and then I discovered music. You know, I went through a lot of years of not really caring about anything and having a lot of anger and sadness and not really understanding what to do with all that grief. So I think I think throughout high school and then into college around that time meeting Wes, it was like this big buildup of I just kind of threw myself, trying to throw myself into something positive and constructive because – with that amount of grief, your system is overloaded and doesn't know what to do. You're kind of in this freak out moment where nothing really makes sense and you feel kind of jaded and sort of a lot of anger. So I felt like, you know, um, experiencing something like that, I'm trying to do something right with it. You know, it's like you're given this, this experience that you can't change whether you want to or not and you have to deal with it in some way. So I think turning life experiences into to music is great. I mean, whether it's something big, like losing a family member prematurely, or whether it's waiting in line at the bank and seeing something interesting from another customer. It's like... Wait, has that happened? Have you written a song based on a bank trip? No, I have not written a song, but I've been in <laughs> banks or maybe a Safeway uh, shopping line, and you just see things that are so minuscule in the grand scheme of life that are so fascinating and interesting that David Byrne talked about like he says love is too big of an idea to him and he talks about writing about like a lamp or something and <laughs> it's just true. kind of an interesting take. I mean he's a profound lyricist. He knows that but he's also kind of poking fun at don't take life too seriously. There's, there's like the minuscule is beautiful too I think. And David Byrne from Talking Heads. Yeah. And uh, well I mean that kind of goes back to the hospital gown. I mean granted that was a really heavy time in your life Wesley but it's this tiny detail that allowed me to connect with you you right. know as a listener of the album. Yeah I feel like a lot of that um, – not the irony, I feel like we never use that word correctly, but the odd thing about songwriting is that uh, the more you can tell your story and the details of that story, it's funny, but people seem to sort of take them on as their own. 
And, yeah. and, and it's inspiring. It makes you want to, as an artist, dig dig deeper and go deeper because it it's a good cathartic thing to have have happened. Jeremiah. And there's a huge compliment to that lyric. That it reminds me in, in a similar way. I was a huge fan of uh, the show Breaking Bad. And in the pilot, the first episode, um, Walter White is being diagnosed with terminally ill cancer and has maybe six months left to live. And Walter White's character looks at the doctor and says, you have mustard on the collar of your shirt. And the doctor says, did, did you understand what I just told you? And he said, yeah, yeah, I got it. But you have like this mustard. And it was just this really surreal. He's kind of ignoring this this massive thing and sort of shining light on something very mundane. Mundane, but it's all part of the same, I don't know, essence. Tapestry and, or something. Yeah, tapestry. And, yeah. There's a lot of imagery in this song, uh, Gun Song. It was a pistol, a Smith & Wesson, holy, holy this song was also in the time when my dad had just passed away and uh, so soon after that that the, the clothes were still in his drawers and so I was running late for work uh, and realized I didn't have black socks and I knew I'd be sent home without those so um, you were a waiter or something yeah I was a bartender at a, a pretty crappy job and um, I ended up reaching into his sock drawer in a hurry. I was running late and uh, unexpectedly pulling out his pistol that I didn't know he ever had or had in there, much less. I was disappointed that I couldn't ask him about it. That was the first emotion. And the second was, what else did I know about this person that I was supposedly so close with? And then it became true that that was true of any relationship I had. You know, we, we have these different things that we don't share. And uh, I also, from a standpoint of lyrics, it was it was an interesting song because each verse sort of takes on this, um, says, I don't want a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one to hold it, aim it. And you think it's all of a sudden a bad thing. And then it says, make all the bad men run, like protecting me. I don't own a single gun, but if I did, you'd be the one. The whole it ain't it make all of the bad men run But I don't own a single gun So each verse kind of takes that on, that challenge of presenting something and then almost like a funhouse mirror shifting it into this brand new direction. I try to do that on each verse uh, lyrically. People are going to say you're a band, uh, you know, based in Colorado. This is about gun control. <laughs> I guess they will. Yeah, it's, I think it's an important thing that we all need to talk about, but the, the song wasn't written with an intention like that. I think that happens a lot in politics and, and music. Well, speaking of, of names, so that's Gun Song. Um, I want to get to the name of the Lumineers. I understand that it was not your name to begin with, and in fact... You took it on kind of by accident, Jeremiah. Yeah, we were uh, sort of given the name. You know, you don't really – you don't choose your first name when you're born and it's kind of the same thing. We were under a different moniker at the time and – Which was? Uh, which was Wesley Jeremiah. Wesley Jeremiah. Deeply creative. <laughs> really? <guy. Wow. laughs> right? Yeah. We just <laughs> forgot the word band at the end of that. Which yeah. proved to be a troublesome name at times because the sound guy, you know, it, he would think it was one person showing up. And it was not one person. It was Is there a Wesley Jeremiah in the house, in yeah. other words? Yeah, yeah, I exactly. see. Okay. So 
yeah, the guy said uh, up next, Lumineers are playing. And I think Wes politely corrected him and said, you know, that's not our name, but uh, we're called, you know, we would start playing our set. And then maybe that night or a couple of days after, we thought, what was that name? That was pretty cool. So the the real Lumineers at the time did not show up and you just kind of went on stage? Yeah, so they were there the next week, the same slot. <laughs> uh, you know, he just had his weeks mixed up, which is odd in, its, in and of itself because you never really have an announcer at shows. It's like a 1950s idea of like, up next, we have the Lumineers. Like it wasn't – that never happens at clubs. But for some reason, it was at this particular club. And he was on the wrong week on his pages. So, so is there some dude who who still thinks of himself as the Lumineer? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, we looked them up. We added the – so it became the Lumineers and never really expected to use it because that's just the essence of how you think. We weren't thinking that far ahead. We just thought it sounds good. It fits. We'll figure it out later. And for um, anyone that's ever tried to come up with band names, it's a horrible, agonizing process. Everything sounds stupid and yeah. it's just... It's bad. It's and really we, hard. We were pretty good at making bad band names. But uh, the other thing about it was uh, they stole it from a, a dental veneer company. So a dental veneer company. Yeah. So when you look up the <laughs> Lumineers today, yeah. What will come up first is this dental veneer company, and they're paying a lot of money to come up first on those. Wait, results. really? You guys aren't first? No, because they're they're bribing Google, the, legally bribing. Okay, wait, hold on. I'm Lumineers. I want to try this. They should be at the top. Of those. Like no, least. you guys. Really? You guys have moved you past the the veneers. No. Yeah. Let Even me show at you the, the screen. Yeah. The Lumineers, on oh, sale now, buy tickets. Maybe they gave up. Look up The Lumineers. The Lumineers. Lumineers Teeth, that comes up first in the automatic. Nope, it's you guys. You oh, we did have it. made it. Yeah. This is the day. I'm so glad I could be here for this moment. <laughs> I've always wanted to beat the dental community out. It's always been a little dream. <laughs> what I find remarkable about this, this latest album is that the instrumentation is really pretty straightforward, but the sound is huge. Yeah. And you're not achieving a huge sound, you know, through like auto-tune and all the kind of stuff that a lot of pop music has today. How are you doing that? I think that it's so much of the credit needs to go to Ryan Hewitt, the engineer of this album. He really dialed in these sounds and tones and just overall aesthetic to a degree that I didn't think could exist. I mean, he really knocked it out of the park. Are you playing really hard on the instruments? Sometimes, yeah, and that really can elicit a better sound. You know, a for example, a light like snare drum versus a loud hit snare drum will be recorded differently. Even though in post you can turn up the volume, you want to be recording it at its optimal intensity. And I think that they found a great room for Wes to do vocals and sometimes vocals and guitar together. Mm. And that can really break through that the barrier between listener and, and writer. Things like that were implemented in just such a smart way. Yeah. And if I could just piggyback off that, I think um, I think there was an onus put on what sounds were going into the mic, not what we could do with them once they were recorded. So a lot of time was spent, like scientists, testing out different amps until we got the one. I tried six or seven different vocal mics before we settled on the one that was this weird Russian mic. That, and I think... Putting an onus on that means it's kind of less work at the end of the day, but it also sounds better because you're not in post uh, putting all these effects on things and trying to give them steroids. They're already sounding big uh, naturally. It's a weird Russian mic. Is it Soviet? It's I don't think old. it's that old. Okay, okay. Yeah. No, it's it's this white Russian mic that I probably couldn't pronounce. Uh, 
that just happened to sound good when I would sing on it versus the other ones. I want to go out uh, with one of your older songs. A little strange, I know, because you have a new album. But this is a song about uh, a candidate. And it's an election year, so it's been stuck in my mind. This track is called... It's called The Big Parade. The Big Parade. Uh, do you want to say a few words about it? It was originally called Mob Rule. Uh, and every verse is a new vignette. And I, the idea I loved playing with was that every verse involves a big crowd. Um, so in the beginning, it almost seems like it's a, you know, it's a funeral for a, a famous politician, but then it's actually the guy just coming down in a victory parade. And the next scene is about, you know, a boxer walking to the ring. And every scene involves just a, a large crowd and, and the backstory behind that. And that was the challenge of writing. And I think it has this sort of sister quality to, it, it's almost related to Cleopatra in the way of it's this, it's this bigger song lyrically. It, it tackles a lot more than, than some of the other tracks. Gentlemen, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And oh my, my, oh hey, hey, here he comes, the candidate. Blue-eyed boy, United States, vote for him, the candidate. Wesley Schultz and Jeremiah Freights are two-thirds of the Denver band, The Lumineers. Their latest album is Cleopatra, and that interview about it was one of our favorites from 2016. See what else resonated with us and with you at cprnews.org. Click Conversations We Can't Forget. While 2016 was a bright one for the Lumineers, it was a rough one for many music lovers, with the deaths of legends, David Bowie, George Michael, Leonard Cohen. Well, our colleagues at CPR's Open Air pay tribute December 30th with a program called Dearly Departed. They enlisted Colorado artists to perform the music of those who passed away this year. For a preview, here is country bluesman Larry Nix performing My Past is Present by the late Merle Haggard. The girl I love so much Just walked through the door My past is present But she's not mine anymore didn't she stop by to hurt me? Or does she even know I'm here? My past is present. Couldn't be that she still cares. For without her, there's no future. She's close but far away. I keep hoping my tomorrow Catch up with yesterday For time stopped My world stopped Since she went away My past is present And I just hope she's back to stay Time has stopped, my world has stopped Since she went away 
Larry Nix remembering Merle Haggard. For more musical tributes, tune to CPR's Open Air December 30th at 4 for Dearly Departed, Colorado Remembers 2016. This is Colorado Matters.